Zechariah chapter 9. Now, you had a heads up that that was coming. I kind of wanted to keep it a secret, just so I could see the panic on your face. I mean, we've been in Genesis. That's an easy book to find, right? If you can't find Genesis, well, Zechariah 9. That's like a, that's like a good sword drill reference. Zechariah 9, 9, you remember those? I was tempted to do that to you this morning. Have everybody hold their Bibles up in the air over their heads, right? And then say Zechariah 9, 9. We still kind of have that. Let's be honest with each other. When the pastor gives the Scripture reference, you don't want to be the last one on the road to get there. We feel like it kind of says something about our spirituality, particularly those of you who are using a digital device as your Bible this morning. If somebody using a physical copy of God's Word has gotten to Zechariah 9.9 and you're still scrolling up and down trying to figure out where it's at, you feel like, um, well, the only way that you can overcome that is if you arrive at Zechariah 9 and you actually have something on that page highlighted. You have some note in the margin and then instead of kind of hiding your Bible, you lay it out there in your lap, wide open, you see, I got, I got, there's a note there. I read, I read this. I don't remember when, but at some point I read this passage. Well, Zechariah 9 is a hard passage to find and it is even more difficult to understand. There is a reason we are not often in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets and Zechariah is one of the reasons that the minor prophets have a bad name. It is my... Uh, firm conviction that when the writer of Hebrews said that long ago, many times, and in various ways God spoke, he had in his mind, among many things, the book of Zechariah. Because Zechariah is not like an epistle that's nice and laid out and structured. It's not even like Genesis that's this nice historical narrative. After a brief introduction, you are thrown into Zechariah's dreams. Now, I've got weird dreams. Zechariah outdoes me. He needs an interpreting angel to help him understand what God is communicating to him. And so there is reason that we aren't often in Zechariah. Well, this morning we don't have time to go through all of the book of Zechariah. It's worthwhile. Let me assure you of that. While I have put Zechariah down now, he's dead so I can do that. But while I've put him down, let me assure you that the labors that you put into understanding the book of Zechariah are well worth it. Okay, so I have stalled for so long. If you are not in Zechariah 9.9 by this point, I I really, I can't help you. Just ask somebody around you to get you there. Zechariah 9.9, this is what God's Word says. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's interesting in this passage, if you noticed it, is that God commands through Zechariah that His people rejoice. That's kind of a weird thing to command. Rejoice. I mean, it'd be weird if Patrick got up here. We expect him to tell us when to stand. We don't expect him to like point us and be like, hey, rejoice! But this is what's commanded. Now, That's weird to begin with. It's even weirder when you understand the context into which God is speaking to His people through Zechariah. This is not people sitting in an air-conditioned room in nice cushy chairs. They might not be as cushy as when we first started. But nice cushy chairs, comfortable, relaxed. 
He is speaking to a people who are languishing and are on the brink of utter despair. He is not speaking in the times of David when things are going well or in the prosperity of Solomon. No, He's speaking to a humble group of Jews who have returned to a broken down city, a destroyed temple, and who are already undergoing persecution and harassment by surrounding nations. It is into that context that Zechariah speaking the oracles of God, which is how chapter 9 begins, commands that they rejoice. Now, if you're going to command that somebody rejoice in that context, it better be really good. You see, Israel had been decimated. The nation of Israel had been destroyed, first by the Assyrians and then cleaned up, the two tribes left of Judah, cleaned up by the Babylonians. And, and it was bad enough that, that the promised land had been taken. What was difficult for them to understand was that it wasn't just parts of the promised land, but the whole thing. And not just the, the whole thing, but that that included Jerusalem. Jerusalem was God's holy mountain. It was the place where He had chosen for His name to dwell in His holy temple. And pagans, Gentiles, who worshipped other gods, had marched into Jerusalem, had laid waste to the walls, had destroyed the temple, and had carried away its treasures. And for 70 years, God's people were in exile. And their time in exile, they had nothing to cling to other than the prophecies, the promises that God had given them of a restored kingdom. Because while they sat in lands foreign to their own, they had zero ability to make those promises come to pass. Some of you understand what that's like. Some of us at points in our lives have been there where we know that God's Word is good and that He's made promises to us, but as we look around at our circumstances and we look around at what we are able to accomplish, we know we have zero capacity to bring them to pass. Israel had no military might. Israel had no political power. Israel had no riches that they could use to to try and reestablish a kingdom. No, they were totally dependent on God to be faithful to His promises or there would never be a nation of Israel again. And God was faithful. What was impossible for a scattered people was not difficult for a mighty God. And so he took the heart of what was easy to say was the most powerful man on the face of the earth, Cyrus, who was the ruler of the Persian Empire, which had taken over from the Babylonians. And he took his heart and he turned it, as the Scripture says, like water in his hand. And Cyrus decreed that the Jews could return to Jerusalem. And he also decreed that they could rebuild the temple. And so a feeble group of Jews returned to Jerusalem and they, upon arriving in Jerusalem, Ezra tells us that the first thing that they did as they got there is they built an altar. Now you just have to picture that. You need to picture destruction all around. 
A wall with no city, no houses, no homes, a temple that is in ruin, no treasures, and yet sitting in the midst of that rubble, there is an altar, and once again, sacrifices are offered up to the God of Israel. A bit of light in the midst of darkness. And then they begin to rebuild the foundation of the temple, to to lay it. They don't get very far before the surrounding nations decide they don't necessarily like what's going on. First, they act as though they want to participate. They want to lend a helping hand. But when they're refused, their true colors are shown. And they begin to pour on the persecution, the harassment. Now remember, this, this is not a mighty nation. This isn't a nation with political power. This isn't a nation with a king. This isn't a, a nation that, that has a great army. <laughs> they were extremely vulnerable. And so under the pressure that surrounded them, the building of the temple had stopped. What was going on? This, this, was, not, this was not the rebuilt kingdom that they were expecting. <laughs> This did not fit with the prophecies that they had heard through the mouths of men like Isaiah and Jeremiah. This was not it. A broken temple, a foundation kind of laid, an altar, no walls to a city. This was not it. What was God doing? And they were despairing. And so God raises up two men, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage His people and to call them to remember God's faithfulness And to assure them that He would be good to keep His promises. And based upon that, to encourage them to take up again the building of the temple. And so in the midst of that context, God commands through Zechariah, in Zechariah 9.9, that His people in that situation rejoice. And He uses this tender language for them. He says, Rejoice, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. be good for us to note that this isn't, this isn't subtle rejoicing that he's calling for here. It's great rejoicing. It's loud rejoicing. And then there's that word, if you see it there, that says, Behold. This is going to give the reason why God would call His people in that context, in that moment, why they should rejoice. And this is what he says, Behold, your King is coming to you. Now the moment that, that orig- those original hearers heard that word, your king, it would have immediately in their mind would have connected with a covenant that was made to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's this covenant that God makes with David that David would have a descendant who would sit on the throne and his kingdom would have no end. That would have registered in their mind. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's what would have connected in their mind. That's what they would have understood. Your king, Israel, is coming to you. He's coming. He's not here yet. He doesn't give a date, but he's coming. And then he says this, he says he's coming to you. The the idea there is that he's coming for your benefit. He's not just going to make kind of a cameo appearance. He's not showing up so he can post a few things on his social media feed and then ride back out of town. 
He's coming, and He's coming for your benefit. So right now, in this present situation, you can rejoice. Now, here's what I kind of picture in this moment, okay? I picture kids who are having a bad day. Maybe they wore off at school and they had a bad day. Who knows? Kids can have a bad day and there didn't really need to be anything going wrong. I don't know. Maybe their juice box exploded. Who knows? They're having a bad day and they're struggling. And so mom and dad sit them down. They look at their kids with great affection, which we always do, don't we parents? Nothing but affection. We look at them with affection and we say to them, the parent says to these children who are struggling, listen, there's no, there's no reason to be sad. In fact, you could be really, really happy. Do you know why? Because mom and dad have saved up lots of money and we're going to go to Disney World. Now, because, well, let's be honest. If it was the dad who said it, the first thing the kids are going to do is look to mom to make sure this is a true story. Once mom confirms it, those children are not going to go, hmm, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Hmm. I'll rejoice when we get there. What is the natural response of those children going to be? Assuming these are loving parents, assuming these are not parents who have repeatedly said that they're going to Disney World and they've never gone, assuming these are kind and loving parents, those children in simple faith are going to believe that in fact they are going to Disney World. They haven't been told when it's going to happen. They don't know how it's going to happen. They don't know who's driving. They don't know how long they're going to stay. But that will not stop them in that moment from rejoicing. Well, how could they rejoice when it hasn't even happened yet. They rejoice because they are confident in the goodness of their parents and that they will do what they said they were going to do. do you, have you caught up with me yet? You see where I'm going? God commands in a broken city, destroyed walls, an unfinished temple with nothing but an altar there. He looks at His people and because of who He is, He can say to them, My daughters, rejoice greatly. Shout aloud because your King is coming for your benefit. He's coming. And you can rejoice now because I have been faithful to every promise I have made to you. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't even be back in this land. But I am going to accomplish all I have promised. You don't need to delay your hallelujah because of who I am. There's a song I enjoy listening to. It's not necessarily a song we would sing here, but it's entitled, You Deserve It. And it simply says this in the chorus, My hallelujah belongs to you. In that moment, in the midst of all of that despair, the hallelujah of the daughter of Zion belonged to her faithful God. 
And He was worthy to be praised because He had shown Himself to be faithful over and over and over again. So long before the King arrives, without knowing the date He's going to show up, without having all of the details, He can command that they rejoice because He is faithful and He is good. Amen? Now, what we get next are some descriptions of this King. They're going to fill it out a little more. Right? I mean, the news needs to be good news. Take my illustration from before and you sit the kids down and say, hey, we're going to the dentist. It's not going to be as exciting. Even though you're taking them to the dentist out of love, you're paying good money for someone to fix their teeth, which they consume, the other money that you make with groceries that you buy, It's an act of love all the same, but not quite the same effect. So what God does is He describes this King that is coming. Reminds them of this King. Four descriptions of this King. We'll look at them briefly. First, He says that this King who is coming is righteous. He's righteous. Now, this simple word righteous just means conformity to an established standard. Okay, And, and the easiest way to, to picture this is measurement. I mean, I don't want to get all weird or something, but really, what is a pound? I mean, what is that? It's just an amount of weight we all agreed upon and we said, yeah, that's a pound. What's a foot? I mean, not an actual foot, but like a foot. Well, what's a yard? Most of the world doesn't know. We're stuck on those things, but... What's a meter? I don't know. It's just what we all got together. Somebody did. I wasn't there. They didn't invite me. But they said, hey, we're going to take this set of measurement. We're going to say, this is a yard. And we need that. It's really important. Because it's really hard to to know that we're all talking about the same thing if we just all get to make up what a yard is. Looks like a yard to me. Right? We need those set standards. And so we have those set standards. And therefore, if you say something is a yard when it's not a yard, what is that? It's not righteous. It doesn't measure up to the standard. If you say something weighs five pounds, then it doesn't weigh five pounds. Right? It's not just. It doesn't measure up to the standard. That's the simplest way to think of it. Why would this be encouraging to Israel as, as God says through Zechariah, a righteous king is coming to you? Well, because Israel had received something that was a little greater than some measurements of weights. Israel had received a standard. Some would call the, the God calling Israel out of, out of the exiles is kind of a second exodus. Well, at the first exodus, the first great deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, where they were helpless to save themselves, then God broke in. The, one of the first things He did was direct them to a mountain, Mount Sinai. And there He gave to them, in love, His righteous standard. The law. And Israel's history is not a history after having received that law of continually progressing and getting more and and getting better and better at measuring up to that law. No, in fact, it's, it's the exact opposite. One commentator put it this way, and I thought it was good. He said, far from recording an evolutionary spiral of standard progress from Moses to Christ, 
The Bible presents a high point of revelation at the time of the Exodus, followed by a decline which the occasional Reformation was powerless to reverse. The whole tragic story could be summed up in the sequence, chosen, privileged, presumptuous, rebellious. How did Israel end up in exile? How did they get there? Because they failed to be faithful to God's covenant. They did not measure up to the righteous standard. Well, guess what? It didn't take them all the way till the exile to fail to measure up. They hadn't left the mountain. They had just received the law and they don't just kind of mess up. They totally blow it. And that's their entire history. One failure after another to measure up. Even at their finest moments. Even their finest kings. Go ahead, raise up David. He failed miserably. They couldn't achieve this standard. And here's the reality. The reality is if God took them and He rebuilt Jerusalem and allowed them to rebuild the temple and He allowed them to rebuild the walls and if the nation of Israel had more political power and military might and economic prosperity than ever before, they would still be hopeless because they would be incapable of arriving at accomplishing God's righteous standard. Oh, this is hope. He is righteous. Jesus Christ came and the Scripture tells us He came and accomplished all righteousness. He said out of His own mouth, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Looking back on that Jesus, Paul with hope in Romans would say that now our righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, though the law and the prophets testify to it. Righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He would later in Romans chapter 8 say that there's no condemnation for us because what we were weak and incapable of doing in our flesh, God did sending His Son. Oh, this was the righteousness that Israel desperately needed. Jesus would live a perfect life. He would fully accomplish and fulfill the law. He's righteous. The second thing is he's having salvation. I don't know how your version puts it. In the ESV it says having salvation. There are variations in how that's translated because it's not clear whether the verb should be passive or reflexive. And for some of you, that doesn't mean anything. But it's okay. What is he talking about? Having salvation. Well, the idea is that he he delivers He is bringing salvation. I would assume in the minds of those original hearers of Zechariah, they're thinking this salvation is from the immediate oppression that they're feeling. Maybe it's salvation, uh, great salvation from uh, from, from the Persian Empire. Uh, maybe, maybe it's salvation just from the surrounding peoples that were, that were oppressing and, and attacking them and holding them back. Maybe that's what's in their minds. I think, what, as we read from Matthew 21, as Jesus is accomplishing this 
prophecy, riding into Jerusalem, I think part of the reason for the praise of those people is that they're assuming now is the time this righteous king having salvation is going to deliver them from Rome. The reality is is that what he was going to do in accomplishing salvation was far greater than deliver them from any political power or human power, but he was going to save them from the wrath of a righteous God. Their failure to measure up to the standard that God had set out for them, that needed to be met. But the reality is, is that even once that standard was met, there were consequences, there was a penalty for their failure to have measured up to that standard. And that had to be paid. It had to be dealt with. So this king, who is righteous, he will come and he will accomplish salvation for them. We have been in Genesis. We were just talking about the fall. And the testimony of Scripture is clear. And, and, and Paul does this amazing thing where in Romans chapter 5, he tells the whole story of Scripture in two stories. One Adam and a second Adam. And he says, listen, there was a standard for the first Adam, and guess what? He failed. And you know that he failed, and you know that sin came in, because death reigned. You thought about that? Probably not. It's not a real true thought. Death reigned. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Abraham, when God called him out and made a covenant with him. And death reigned from Abraham to Moses. And death reigned from Moses to David. And death reigned on. Death reigned in Zechariah's time. Death was reigning in Jesus' time. And death reigned because there was a penalty for sin. And there was not a single person who could conquer that penalty for sin and overcome death. This king was coming so that he could do that. So that being righteous, he might not be exalted in his righteousness, but be made low and take our sins upon him and die in our place, but not to stay dead. Because the grave couldn't contain him. Death, as it said, could not hold him. And so he rises victorious so that He can fulfill this prophecy and say to His people Israel and to all who would put faith in them, this King is righteous and having salvation. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This triumph, this salvation accomplished by this King and there is no other. There's no other salvation. These two go hand in hand as you'll see as you read through the Old Testament, and particularly prophecy, this idea of righteousness and salvation. Now having said all of that, the Bible tells us, the next thing that Zechariah tells us is that he's humble. This is a word that is used of Moses in Numbers 12, verse 3. He's humble. It can also be translated gentle. It can be afflicted. It can mean poor. Can you think of any prophecies about Jesus that line up with the idea that this coming king would be afflicted, would be poor? He wasn't coming stately in a stately manner. He was poor, rejected. Isaiah draws this out in Isaiah 53. He's, he's humble. Now, for a long time, I... 
I understood this humility and, 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 and was taught in Sunday school classes as, as the teacher would get down and somebody would be picked to ride on their back to, you know, do the whole, you know, parade thing where Jesus is coming into town and somebody's riding on the teacher's back and, you know, we're laying down palm branches and stuff, stuff like that. And I, I, I thought that the idea was that the donkey was the sign of humility. I, I think there's good reason to say, I don't know that that's the case. There were kings who rode on donkeys. That happened. I'll tell you where they didn't ride donkeys. Didn't ride donkeys into battle. I don't know a lot about battle, but I don't think riding a donkey into a battle is a good idea. That was all of my war knowledge, just used up right there. Here's why I bring that out. Because, because I think what we see in the passage that we read in Matthew 21 shows part of the humility of this, this Jesus. So, so Matthew 21, as we read it, I don't, I don't know if you caught it, but, but here is Jesus and He arrives at Jerusalem and He didn't arrive there by accident. No, nobody dragged Jesus to Jerusalem. This isn't the kids screaming and the parent pulling. No, Jesus gets to Jerusalem because the Gospel writers say He set His face towards Jerusalem. He had been in his ministry strategically avoiding Jerusalem and the conflict that he knew was coming until the, his hour arrived. And then he sets his face toward Jerusalem and he heads directly there. And did you read what, what, what Matthew records? This whole thing with the donkey didn't happen by accident. They didn't stop at Quick Trip to get a Coke and... Snickers bar, oh look, a donkey. Well, isn't that nifty? I might hop on that guy, I'm a little tired, and we'll ride in, and oh my goodness, I'm fulfilling prophecy. <gasps> no, the whole thing is set up. Who sets it all up? Jesus does. This guy who's, who's got a, he's, he looks just like us. This, this man, 100% man, is also 100% God. <laughs> and, 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 and he's making all of this happen. He's ordaining that the donkey be where the donkey's supposed to be. I don't know if you've ever worked with a donkey, but that's a miracle in and of itself. The donkey is there. The people ask, why are you taking the donkey? Man, you've got to come up with a better story than the Master. The Lord has need of it. Lord has need of it? I don't know how they said that. I don't know if they said it with confidence. They probably talked about that on the way. Who's going to answer? You answer. I'm not saying anything. The Lord, the Lord has need of it, and okay. And off it goes, and then Jesus sits on this donkey. He is purposely in His sovereign power accomplishing this prophecy. Now why does that matter? Because you see in that moment the authority and power of this King. I can make the simplest of plans and I can't make them happen. I can make my plan this morning. We made plans this morning. We had plans that the baptism were going to happen after I preached. That was our intention. And guess what? It didn't happen. I can have really good plans. I think all my plans are really good, by the way. I can have really good plans. I am powerless to make them happen. This is God in the flesh. 
And He has all of this authority that even down to the smallest of detail, He can make sure that it happens just the way it's supposed to happen. And with all of that power and all of that authority, He is bent in one direction. Not to exaltation, but to present His body to be crushed and His blood to be spilt. All of that power and authority, Mark does such a good job drawing this out. He's powerful over demons, and he's powerful over sickness, and he's powerful as he teaches, and he's more powerful than the scribes. And all of that power, and all of that authority, is bent on one thing. Seeking and saving that which is lost. If you don't see that power, you won't understand the humility. You'll look at a passage like this and you'll think that the point of the passage is for us to try and be like Jesus. You can't do it! You can't do it! That's why He came. Because you couldn't. You couldn't accomplish the righteousness He could accomplish. You couldn't bring salvation the way He brought it. And you couldn't humble yourself the way He did stepping out of glory and taking up a cross. And so you look here and the only right response is to give God the hallelujah He deserves. Now as they heard this, they're looking ahead. And God could say to His beloved people, Rejoice now, because I am faithful and this King is coming. Rejoice now. And those in Jesus' day, the disciples there, laying down palm branches and coats as they went along, they're rejoicing. Let me tell you, well, Luke makes it clear, or Luke, John makes it clear. They don't have a total idea of what's going on. But why are they rejoicing? They're rejoicing because they believe the King has arrived, although they didn't understand the salvation that He brought. They didn't understand the the, the righteousness that He brought. They didn't understand His humility. They were rejoicing. Folks, let me tell you something. If people in Zechariah's time were commanded to rejoice looking forward to a King, and people in Jesus' time were rejoicing as the prophecy was fulfilled, there is one right response for you and I as we look back on this moment when Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey. And it is that we rejoice. There are promises that we wait for. Here's this great thing. This, here's this great thing. And I know Howard's sitting over there and he's been teaching a kingdom class and he's... His mind is stirring with all of the kingdom promises in Zechariah. And, and, and if we had another hour, we could go into all of that. Here's all I can tell you. One, read Zechariah. And highlight some stuff so next time you can be the most spiritual person on the road. But here's the other thing. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew intentionally only highlights this verse. Because the first eight verses of Zechariah 9 had been fulfilled. There are other promises in Zechariah that Matthew doesn't quote because we await the fulfillment of those promises. The king who rode into Jerusalem that day will come to Jerusalem again. And just like God commanded praise from His people before the king came the first time, you and I have every reason to praise Him now for the promises that we are waiting to see fulfilled. 
Don't sit like the stubborn child in the corner saying, I'll believe it when I see it. Look at your Savior. Look at this King who came and fulfilled exactly what He said He was going to do the first time and give Him today, right now, your praise. Give Him the hallelujah He deserves. Worship Him because He is worthy and He will be faithful to accomplish all of His promises. Now that was all supposed to lead into baptisms and, and, and saying we're going to worship God as we watch people be baptized. So here's what we're going to do though. As things have worked out, we still have one that needs to get wet. And we are going to hear, and what I would call you to, what I would plead with you to do, is rejoice. Because the waters that were stirred before and the waters that are about to be stirred are pointless if this prophecy is not fulfilled. If the King doesn't come with righteousness and having salvation, there is zero significance in what we have done. But because He is faithful, we can rejoice.